Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman, known as Spurgeon's Gems. Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from volume one of that collection. It's number 37. It's entitled simply Law and Grace. We're in part two of that message. Now we come to the second part of the subject, and that is the entrance of the law into the heart. We have to deal carefully when we come to deal with internal things. It's not easy to talk about this, this little thing, the heart. And when we begin to meddle with the law of their soul, many become indignant. But we do not fear their wrath. We are going to attack the hidden man this morning. The law entered their hearts that sin might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. First, the law causes the offense to abound by discovering sin to the soul. When once God, the Holy Ghost, applies the law to the conscience, secret sins are dragged to light. Little sins are magnified to their true size, and things apparently harmless become exceedingly sinful. Before that dread searcher of the hearts and trier of the reins makes his entrance into the soul, it appears righteous, just, lovely, and holy. But when he reveals the hidden evils, the scene is changed. Offenses which were once styled peccadilloes, trifles, freaks of youth, follies, indulgences, little slips, then appear in their true color as breaches of the law of God, deserving condign punishment. John Bunyan shall explain my meaning by an extract from his famous allegory. Then the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust, because never swept, in which, after he had reviewed it a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now, when he began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about that Christian had almost therewith been choked. Then said the interpreter to a damsel that stood by, Bring hither water and sprinkle the room. The which, when she had done, it was swept and cleansed with pleasure. Then said Christian, What means this? The interpreter answered, This parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law. But she that brought the water and did sprinkle it <coughs> is the gospel. Now, whereas you saw that as soon as she first began to sweep, the dust did so fly about that the room could not by him be cleansed, but that you were almost choked therewith, this is to show you that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, does revive, put strength into it, and increase it in the soul even as it does discover and forbid it, for it does not give power to subdue. 
Again, as you saw the damsel sprinkle the room with water upon which it was cleansed with pleasure, this is to show you that when the gospel comes in, the sweet and precious influences thereof to the heart, then I say, even as you saw the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued, and the soul made clean through the faith of it, and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. The heart is like a, a dark cellar, we're back to Spurgeon again, full of lizards, cockroaches, beetles, and all kinds of reptiles and insects, which in the dark we see not. But the law takes down the shutters and lets in the light, and so we see the evil. Thus, sin becoming apparent by the law, it is written, the law makes the offense to abound. Once again, number two, the law, when it comes into the heart, shows us how very black we are. Some of us know that we are sinners. It's very easy to say it. The word sinner has only two syllables in it, and uh, many there be who frequently have it on their lips, but who do not understand it. They see their sin, but it does not appear exceedingly sinful till the law comes. We think there is something sinful in it, but when the law comes, we detect its abomination. Has God's holy light ever shone into your souls? Have you had the fountains of your great depravity and evil broken up and been wakened sufficiently to say, Oh God, I have sinned. Now, if you have your hearts broken up by the law, you'll find the heart is more deceitful than the devil. I can say this of myself. I am very much afraid of mine. It is so bad. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. The devil is one of the things, therefore it is worse than the devil, and desperately wicked. How many do we find who are saying, well, I trust I have a, a, a very good heart at the bottom. Yeah, there may be a little amiss at the top, but I'm, I'm a very good-hearted person at bottom. Well, if you saw some fruit on the top of a basket that was not quite good, would you buy the basket because they told you, aye, but they are good at the bottom? No, no, you would say, they're sure to be the best at the top, and if they're bad there, they're sure to be rotten below. There are many people who live strange lives, and some friends will say, well, he's a good-hearted person at bottom. He, he would get drunk sometimes, but he's very good-hearted at the bottom. <laughs> Don't believe it. Men are seldom estimated better than they seem to be. If the outside of the cup or platter is clean, the inside may be dirty. But if the outside is impure, you may always be sure the inside is no better. Most of us put our goods in the window. We keep all our good things in the front, bad things behind. Let you and I, instead of making excuses about ourselves, about the badness of our hearts, if the law has entered into our soul, bow down and say, Oh, the sin, oh, the uncleanness, the blackness, the awful nature of our crimes. The law entered that the offense may abound. 
Number three, the law reveals the exceeding abundance of sin by discovering to us the depravity of our nature. We are all prepared to charge the serpent with our guilt or to insinuate that we go astray from the force of ill example. But the Holy Spirit dissipates these dreams by bringing the law into the heart. Then the fountains of the great deep are broken up. The chambers of imagery are are opened. The innate evil of the very essence of fallen man is discovered. The law cuts into the core of the evil. It reveals the seat of the malady and informs us that the leprosy lies deep within. Oh, how the man abhors himself when he sees all his rivers of water turned into blood and loathsomeness creeping over all his being. He learns that sin is no flesh wound, but a stab in the heart. He discovers that the poison has impregnated his veins, lies in his very marrow, and has its fountain in his inmost heart. Now he loathes himself and would fain be healed. Actual sin seems not half as terrible as inbred sin, and at the thought of what he is, he turns pale and gives up salvation by works as an impossibility. Number four, having thus removed the mask and shown the desperate case of the sinner, the relentless law causes the offense to abound yet more by bringing home the sentence of condemnation. It mounts the judgment seat, puts on the black cap, and pronounces the sentence of death. With a harsh, unpitying voice, it solemnly thunders forth the words, Condemned already. It bids the soul prepare its defense, knowing well that all apology has been taken away by its former work of conviction. The sinner is therefore speechless, and the law, with frowning looks, lifts up the veil of hell and gives the man a glimpse of torment. The soul feels that the sentence is just, that the punishment is not too severe, and that mercy it has no right to expect. It stands quivering, trembling, fainting, and intoxicated with dismay until it falls prostrate in utter despair. The sinner puts the rope around his own neck, arrays himself in the attire of the condemned, and throws himself at the foot of the king's throne with but one thought, I am vile, and with one prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Number five, nor does the law cease its operations even here, for it renders the offense yet more apparent by discovering the powerlessness occasioned by sin. It not only condemns, but it actually kills. He who once thought that he could repent and believe at pleasure finds in himself no power to do either, either the one or the other. When Moses smites the sinner, he bruises and mangles him with the first blow, but at a second or a third, he falls down as one dead. I have been in such a condition that if heaven could have been purchased by a single prayer, I should have been damned, for I could no more pray than I could fly. 
Moreover, when we are in the grave which the law has dug for us, we feel as if we cannot feel and we grieve because we cannot grieve. The dread mountain lies upon us which renders it impossible to stir hand or foot. And when we would cry for help, our voice refuses to obey us. In vain the minister cries, Repent! Our hard heart will not melt. In vain he exhorts us to believe. That faith of which he speaks seems to be as much beyond our capacity as the creation of a universe. Ruin is now become ruin indeed. The thundering sentence is in our ears, condemned already. Another cry follows it, dead in trespasses and sins. And a third, more awful and terrible, mingles its horrible warning, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. In the opinion of the sinner, he is now cast out as a corrupt carcass. He expects each moment to be tormented by the worm that never dies and to lift up his eyes in hell. Now is mercy's moment, and we turn the subject from condemning law to abounding grace. Listen, O oh heavy laden, condemned sinner, while in my Master's name I publish superabounding grace. Grace excels sin in its measure and efficacy. Though your sins are many, mercy has many pardons. Though they excel the stars, the sands, and the drops of dew in their number, one act of remission can cancel all. Your iniquity, though a mountain, shall be cast into the midst of the sea. Your blackness shall be washed out by the cleansing blood of your Redeemer's gore. Mark, I said, your sins, and I meant to say so. For if you are now a law-condemned sinner, I know you to be a vessel of mercy by that very sign. O hellish sinners, abandoned profligates, outcasts from the company of sinners themselves, if you acknowledge your iniquity, here is mercy, broad, ample, free, immense, infinite. Remember this, O sinner. And I quote, If all the sins that men have done, in will, in word, in thought, in deed, since worlds were made or time began, were laid on one poor sinner's head, the stream of Jesus' precious blood applied removes the dreadful load. End of quote. Yet again, grace excels sin in another thing. Sin shows us its parent and tells us our heart is the father of it. But grace surpasses sin there and shows the author of grace, the king of kings. The law traces sin up to our heart, and grace traces its own origin to God. And in his sacred breast I see eternal thoughts of love to me. O Christian, what a blessed thing grace is. For its source is in the everlasting mountains. Sinner, if you are the vilest in the world, if God forgives you this morning, you will be able to trace your pedigree to him. For you will become one of the sons of God and have him always for your father. Methinks I see you, a wretched criminal, at the bar, and I, and I hear mercy cry, Discharge him! 
He is pallid, sick, maimed. Heal him. He is of a vile race. Lo, I will adopt him into my family. Sinner, God takes you for his son. What though you are poor, God says, I will take you to be mine forever. You shall be my heir. There is your fair brother. In ties of blood, he is one with you. Jesus is your actual brother. Yet how came this change? Oh, is not that an act of mercy? Grace did much more abound. Grace hath put me in the number of the Savior's family. Grace outdoes sin, for it lifts us higher than the place from which we fell. And again, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Because the sentence of the law may be reversed, but that of grace can never be reversed. I stand here, and I feel condemned, yet perhaps I have a hope that I may be acquitted. There's a dying hope of acquittal still left, but when we are justified, there is no fear of condemnation. I cannot be condemned if I am once justified, fully absolved by grace. I defy Satan to lay hands on me if I am a justified man. The state of justification is an invariable one and is indissolubly united to glory. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, poor condemned sinner, does not this charm you and make you in love with free grace? And all this is yours. Your crimes, if once blotted out, shall never be laid to your charge again. The justification of the gospel is no Arminian sham, which may be reversed if you should in future turn aside. No, the debt once paid cannot be demanded twice. The punishment once endured cannot again be inflicted. Saved, 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 entirely saved. By divine grace, you may walk without fear the wide world over. And yet once more, just as sin makes us sick and grievous and sad, so does grace make us far more joyful and free. Sin causes one to go about with an aching heart till he seems as if the world would swallow him and and mountains hang above ready to drop upon him. This is the effect of the law. The law makes us sad. The law makes us miserable. But poor sinner, grace removes the evil effects of sin upon your spirit. If you do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall go out of this place with a sparkling eye 
and a light heart. Ah, well do I remember the morning when I stepped into a little place of worship, as miserable almost as hell could make me, being ruined and lost. I had often been at chapels where they spoke of the law, but I heard not the gospel. I sat down in the pew, a chained and imprisoned sinner. The word of God came, and I went out free. Though I went in miserable as hell, I went out elated and joyful. I sat there black. I went away whiter than driven snow. God had said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Why not this be your lot, my brother, if you feel yourself a sinner now? It is all he asks of you, to feel your need of him. This you have, and now the mood of Jesus lies before you. The law has entered that sin might abound. You are forgiven, only believe it. Elect, only believe it. Tis the truth that you are saved. And now, lastly, poor sinner, has sin made you unfit for heaven? Grace shall render you a fit companion for seraphs and the just made perfect. You who are today lost and destroyed by sin shall one day find yourself with a crown upon your head and a golden harp in your hand, exalted to the throne of the Most High. Think, O drunkard, if you repent, there is a crown laid up for you in heaven. You guiltiest, most lost and depraved, are you condemned in your conscience by the law? Then I invite you, in my Master's name, to accept pardon through his blood. He suffered in your stead. He has atoned for your guilt, and you are acquitted. You are an object of his eternal affection. The law is but a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. Cast yourself on him. Fall into the arms of saving grace. No works are required. No fitness. No righteousness. No doings. You are complete in him who said, It is finished. This poem to close. You debtors whom he gives to know that you ten thousand talents owe. When humble at his feet you fall, your gracious God forgives them all. Slaves that have borne the heavy chain of sin and hell's tyrannic reign, to liberty assert your claim and urge the great Redeemer's name. The rich inheritance of heaven, your joy, your boast, is freely given. Fair Salem, your arrival waits with golden streets and pearly gates. Her blessed inhabitants no more bondage and poverty deplore. No debt, but love immensely great. Their joy still rises with the debt. That's taken from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, the C.H. Spurgeon collection. Necessary changes have been made. There were occasional spelling errors, punctuation, capitalization, that sort of thing. But this is definitely from Charles Spurgeon. You can access this series of messages online at SpurgeonGems.com. Spurgeon Gems, all one word. Gems was with a G now. SpurgeonGems.com. Well, thank you so much for being present today. I do hope you will look around the site, see some other things that might be a blessing to you. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this audio is being released on the 13th of January, 2020.
2023. And Lord willing, we will talk again real soon. Bye-bye.